us is what I'm just referring to as a tale of two women. And Christmas is obviously a good time to think about the prominence of women in the purpose of God. Because you won't find a big story in the Bible that lacks a woman as the main character. Is it really, uh, is it really uh, debatable that in some respects in the garden, Eve winds up being the main character in some respects? You won't, is it really debatable to say that in the resurrection, the first witnesses, the women in that scene are prominent characters? And even as we get to the end of the book, to the book of Revelation, we see these two women set before us as sort of paradigms for everything that's happening in the world. And on the one hand, you have the woman in the wilderness, who is the mother not only of Jesus, but the mother of all the people of God. She's not a literal woman. She's a woman representing a woman who has surrendered to the Lord, and life is flowing out of her life. And she is the one who brings life into the world. And then you have the whore of Babylon a few chapters later, and she's the one who's bringing death into the world. And I say that Christmas is a really good time to think about these things because, of course, as we've already seen in both what we just sung and what I read earlier, <laughs> women play an exceedingly prominent role in the story of the incarnation. So Christmas is a really good time to talk about the prominence of women in the purposes of God. And we just so happen to be in Proverbs 8 and 9 right now, and we are right actually in the middle of this same theme being communicated in the Word of God. We've looked until this week primarily at the woman who brings death into the world. Is that fair? Verse, uh, chapters 1 through 7 in Proverbs spend a great deal of time talking about this adulterous or forbidden woman who makes her home in Shoal, who leads many to death. So this is still that paradigm we're seeing in the whole Bible. It's the woman who, by her presence, brings death into the world. And we've seen this negative side for the first seven chapters. And now we're in chapter 8 and chapter 9, and we're going to see the positive side, the woman who brings life into the world. And in chapter 8, we begin to realize that, boy, maybe the writer of Proverbs is up to something kind of cool in terms of a storytelling device, as he's shown us this woman who sows calamity and brings death and who lies, and now he's going to show us a woman who speaks truth and brings life. And that woman's name is Wisdom. So in chapters 8 and 9, you have the flip side. You've got these two women again, the one who brings life into the world, the one who brings death into the world. Chapters 1 through 7, we're primarily looking at the one who brings death into the world. Now we are at 8 and 9, and we see the woman who brings life into the world. For instance, look at Proverbs 8, verse 1. Does not wisdom call? We're introduced. This is where we're first introduced in a serious way to, woman, to wisdom as a woman. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. And the thing that she is really represented as doing is summarized at the end of chapter 8. Look at verse 32. 
This is the woman, Lady Wisdom, speaking. It says, And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who fails to find me injures himself, and all who hate me love death. So again, wisdom now is this other woman, the woman who brings life into the world. And then in chapter 9, we, we, we're, we're told very clearly the way that God's writing his word here, that he wants us to think about these two women as the one who brings life into the world and the one who brings death into the world. Because in chapter 9, which is really a chapter about wisdom, lady wisdom, she has set her table, she has made her banquet, she's inviting the simple to come and feast with her. But then in verse 13 of chapter 9, we're, we're introduced to that death woman again. Only this time her name isn't adulterous, it's folly. Look at verse 13 of Proverbs 9. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive, seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So let's do a little biblical theology here. Think about the first nine chapters of Proverbs as a total, looking at two women who are both standing beside the way, calling out to the simple, inviting them both in. Only one is lying and the other is telling the truth. They're both promising life. They're both promising fruitfulness. They're both promising good. One of them is truthful and one of them is lying. This is... We can see this throughout the Bible. We can see this in basically every feminine character you read in the Bible needs to be appropriated into one of these two categories. Which one is she? Which one is she? So on and so forth. And you get to the book of Revelation and you see that this is God's intention. He is intended for us to think this way. For even at the very end, he presents the woman in the wilderness, who, by the way, is um, pathetic looking and highly vulnerable. Um, she's nothing, and she's going to be eaten by a dragon, but the earth helps her, and God helps her, and she's taken care of. And then you have the whore of Babylon a few chapters later, and she looks like everything, right? She, she, if you read that chapter, you'll see that she's dressed in fine linens, and she's, she's highly appealing, and so on and so forth. And so this is the, this is the basic idea that's deeper than women, you know, deep, deep as, as deep as you can get. Some of the things that look the most pathetic and vulnerable are the things that will bring you life, and some of the things that look the most glorious and seductive are the things that will bring you death, and this is all made prominent on the cross because if you're just an average person that doesn't know the story and you're like, who's winning right now? <laughs> you know, you took someone from communist China and know nothing about this story, and you took them to the cross and you said, all right, um, tell me who's winning and tell me whose side you're going to be on, right? So this two women theme is honestly like key to Christmas because you've got Mary and Elizabeth and they are definitely life-bringing women, integral to the whole story. And God chose to tell the story that way, ladies, 
This is why I say the prominent role of women in the purposes of God. It's not, I don't need to tell you that women are prominent or they should be prominent. It's stupid. You shouldn't be prominent. If you're not on God's side, you, you should be nothing. I, I want to make a t-shirt that says abort feminism. It's a non-viable mass of ideas. It's idiocy. Your worth comes from God. Your worth comes from God. Your prominence, your, your value, it comes from God, not a collection of secular ideas meant to make up for past errors, which were also not from God. If you would be willing, whether you're a man or a woman, to be the person on the cross, to be the woman squatting in the wilderness about to be eaten by a dragon, to be the teenager who finds out she's pregnant, if you're willing to be that person, you'll be prominent. And all of your clawing for another way, it won't work. You have to be willing to die to self. Or as wisdom says in chapter 8, I hate those who are prideful. I will have nothing to do with the prideful. If you want to be wise, you got to get over your pride. It is entirely possible for a person to become progressively stupider year after year. I've seen it. Romans 1 describes it. And what's happening is the corrosive effect of pride on a soul causes their minds to become more and more futile. Wisdom becomes further and further estranged from them because wisdom hates pride. So we got these two women, and we see the prominence of women in the Christmas story and really in all the big stories in the Bible. And we see here, we're kind of at the epicenter of that whole idea. So let's talk about it. There's another part I want to put before you, and it's in chapter 9 of verse 3 uh, in the King James. And I had this in my head, and I, 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 I like it much better. But King James uh, chapter 9, verse 3 is, she has sent forth her maidens. And the idea is that wisdom is this lady who's like the lady boss, right? And she's in charge, and she has a bunch of women who are working for her. And she sends those women out to do her bidding. But then we see in verse 13, Folly. Folly is also a, a female boss, and she sends her girls out to work for her. And so, like, one of the ways to think about this is, like, who am I working for? What team am I on? Am I one of wisdom's maidens? Or do I work for Folly International? Am I, am I part of the plan to bring life into the world and blessing and honor and glory? Or am I part of the plan to bring death into the world? And it's like, well, I mean, that's hard to know. Now, as I, I just want to pause here and say that um, I think that anytime a sermon is addressing we see in God's word clearly that there are times to speak to men and women and, you know, young men and older men and so on and so forth. There are times to address individuals. But I think that what you'd always want to do ideally is present truth that applies to everyone and just has like a little bit of flavoring toward the particular group of people that are being addressed. So I, I think of this as the LaCroix, uh, the LaCroix of sermon applications. Like it's almost like 99.9% .9 water and there's a hint of application toward women. Okay, but like all of this, like with just a tiny tad of imagination, you should be able to hear applies to everyone. But yeah, let's let's talk to women in particular, but just a hint of that.
three key features of wise women um, and just wise people. And the first one would be a question or a statement, I guess, and that is a good upstairs window. How can you be a wise woman? You have to have, if you want to be a wise woman, you have to have a good upstairs window. If you want to be a wise man, you have to have a good upstairs window. Some of you are like, I live in a ranch, I'm doomed. <laughs> but of course, the window is just metaphorical. In Proverbs 7, we find, uh, this is another one of those adulterous women sections. But look at this with me in Proverbs 7, verse 6. A man is telling the young man, you know, you got to watch out for this. It's, it's really not a good thing. you got to be careful. And listen to what he says. For... At the, at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, in every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with a bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, so on and so forth. And at the end of this section, the, the, the old man says to the young man, all at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now, what, what's, what's this upstairs window idea? There are a lot of things in life that when they're face-to-face -to, -face to us appear to be more important, more significant, or more valuable than they are. So in this particular section, a seductive woman face-to-face -face with a young man feels to this young man like this is the truth. Right? He is faced with an immediatized understanding of life. This is what's true. And what wisdom is, is really the ability to step out of what you might call as like an imminent perspective and step out in an like upstairs window and look down on the whole thing and be able to see how it all plays out. And this is essentially what wisdom is, and we'll continue to talk about that as we progress into the book. I don't think that wisdom lends itself well, same with the fear of God, to simple definitions that you could just repeat to yourself over and over again. But here's the basic idea, ladies. Do you have the ability to look, to step out of a situation that feels very like this to you? It's, it's, it's in your face, like you didn't put it there and look down on the situation and see it with the proper perspective. So, so one of the immediate applications of this is in the chapter, and that is something, a pleasure looks super interesting. Some, a, a pleasure looks very seductive. Can you, you know, say, I'll be right back, pleasure, and run up the stairs and stand up at the top window and see what, what is going on really here? What is the beginning and the end of this thing? You see, the young man in this particular moment, all he sees is the, he sees and smells all the 
all the really attractive things, right? Like she had just, it says in the text, she had just covered her bed with aloes and myrrhs and cinnamon. So, so she smells like Bath and Body Works, you know? And, and she's got eyelashes, apparently were a big thing then. Um, I don't know if they were real, real back then or not, but I know they often are not now. There's a whole section of eyelashes at Target, guys. It's crazy. It's like a whole section of eyelashes. He is, he, is, he is just seeing the sensory input, and it is like the realest thing to him. And he doesn't see anything other than the thing right in front of him. The old man is looking down, and he has this sort of transcendent perspective that only God can have, really. And he sees what's going on completely. So women, if you want to be an agent for life, if you want to be one of the maidens for lady wisdom, you have to have a good upstairs window. You have to be able to see the beginning and end of a thing and, and remove yourself from the immediatized sort of in-your-faceness of something. Now, here's what the Bible would say. Like, for one thing, women are just as susceptible to this sort of thing from a pleasure perspective. It just might be, it might be sexual pleasure. It might be the pleasure of a nap you shouldn't take. It might be whatever. You're just as susceptible as anybody. You're a human being. I'm a human being. We, we all have these pleasures that get right up here, and they seem like the right choice. And we need a good upstairs window to be able to look down and say, no, there's more going on here than what is presented to me like this. There's another category that also seems to be clearly both men and women. In this particular section, the thing is a pleasure. It's an attractor. But friends, a lot of times it's a fear. It's a bad thing. It's, it's, a, it's a bad thing that's right here. It's a hard thing. And it's, right, it's a hard conversation. And all you can see are the negatives. And you need a good upstairs window. You need to be able to, to, to take a step back from this thing intimidating you, from frightening you away from obedience, from frightening you away from faithfulness. You need to take a step away, go up to your upstairs window, look down on it and say, you know, that thing is presenting itself as a terror, but boy, you know, you walk through this thing and there's all this life. You see the beginning and end of that as well. If you can learn to do this consistently, you will be on wisdom's side. And there's a third category, ladies, and that's just simply the stuff in life that's little that you don't think of as little. You're overreacting and you are making a big deal out of something and you need to, on your own, if you can, go up to the upstairs window and look down and realize this is not a big deal. That's another part of this upstairs window thing. And then there's another piece of it, and that is the stuff that doesn't seem like a big deal that is. And some of the ways that you will get most discouraged in life is you'll be doing things that the world tells you are not significant, and they are in your face, and they look this small. You need to climb upstairs, look down with the eyes of wisdom, and say, oh, no, 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 this isn't small, this is big. It's just small right now, but it'll be 18 soon, right? This capacity to look down on things with a new and transcendent perspective is essentially key to being wise. And that was the longest point I'll make the whole sermon. This is not going to be a super long sermon. Number two, 
Um, next view, next thing that you need to be on wisdom's side is to have a proper view of your own body. So the first thing is, like, have a proper view. Have an upstairs view. The second one is, have an upstairs view of your own body. The first seven chapters, we have seen that the adulterous woman, who is, you know, a servant of folly, an agent of death, she is obviously viewing her body in a way that we would not encourage. She's kind of weaponized it, to be honest. Right? I mean, she's sort of weaponized her eyelashes, I guess you could say. Now, this is this, something that's, like, very difficult in life is that when something does a lot of things well, we, we as human beings tend to think it maybe will do everything well. And your body does so many great things. It's easy to begin to think that your body should do everything. And what I mean by that is, is this. Let me be explicit. Your body was never given to you as a tool. It's, it's, a, it's a tool. God gave you this body as a tool. It does a million things well. Here's one thing it was never intended to do, to make you feel good about yourself. That is not what your body is for. Your body does not exist to make you feel good about yourself. Now, here's just some straight-up dad wisdom. I've got these, I have too many of these things called multi-tools. I think multi-tools are the best thing ever, and they are. I think, Jesse, uh, I, think, I think the sharp girl stole one of my multi-tools, by the way. I see it sitting on her dresser right now. I've got to talk to her about that. I'm very jealous for my multi-tools. Anyway, these multi-tools are great. And I mean, they just have like so many tools on them. It's like wonderful. And the, the, the temptation is to think that that's going to do all the things you need it to do. One of the things it doesn't have, I mean, really none of mine, and I have some pretty good ones, is it doesn't really have the Allen wrench thing. So girls, I want to, I want to present something to you. Um, I become incredibly wealthy. Um, I become an agent of a highly successful, you know, MLB pitcher who's making, you know, $100 million a year or whatever. So I just have tons of money. I mean, you know, I'm a generous guy. I'm like, girls, like, like literally, credit cards, take them. You can go to Ikea, get anything you want. The thing is, is I'm not setting it up. You have to set it up, but like literally knock yourselves out. So y'all like rent some vans and you go to Ikea and like you go buy as much stuff as you want. The only rule is like you have to spend the next week setting it up. We're not going to do it. Men are going to have like all you can eat barbecue the whole time. And when we get back, like it's all going to be done because that was part of the deal. All right. And I leave you these multi-tools, and at first you're like, yeah, I've got this multi-tool. It doesn't have that one thing. And, and so you're going to be, and that's all you get. You don't get, Ikea's not going to give you the multi-tools. Friends, if you think your body exists to make you feel good about yourself, you're in for a world of frustration. Let me just take this to the bank. Some, some dad insights. If you try to do a job with the wrong tool, two things are going to happen. One, the job is going to suffer. And two, you're going to hate that tool by the end of the day. The one you're using that isn't supposed to be used that way. You're going to hate that multi-tool. It had all this promise of being for everything. And now you have to set up like 15 dressers and shelves and stuff. And it's like, it doesn't really work. I mean, maybe you get some of it done poorly. And this is what's going on with thinking that your body exists to do things it doesn't exist to do. And in 
the folly woman, uh, the adulterous woman, she has just got all of the wrong ideas about what her body is actually for. She simply doesn't understand the tool. So just say three things here that the Bible is pretty clear about. Your body is not for attracting attention. Your body is not for advancing your agenda. And your body isn't for making you feel good about yourself. If you want to be on the side of wisdom, you'll have a proper view of your own body. Well, what, you know, Chris, you said the body is this tool and does all these amazing things. It just doesn't do these things. What does it do? What, what does a wise person do with their body? Again, not specific to women. You know, on the one hand, you've got this adulterous woman, and she's just treating her body like an amusement park. You know, it's just literally like pleasure city. That's the whole point, right? It's like, that, your God did not give you your body for that. But then you look at what Lady Wisdom does with her body. Well, look with me. Look at verse uh, uh, 1 of chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has set her table. Uh, the adulterous woman's out here just, you know, like, like doing nothing, really. And... Wisdom lady, she's building houses and hewing, hewing pillars and slaughtering beasts and mixing wine. And here's, here's, another, here's another way to think about it. Proverbs 31, ideal woman, so on and so forth. What body part is mentioned and how is it talked about? Proverbs 31, 17 through 20. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaffs and her hands hold the spindles and she opens her hand to the poor and she reaches out her hands to the needy. Here's a crazy thought. What if that's the part of your body that really means everything to God? What are you doing with these? Are you serving are you strengthening the needy? Are you giving? These, these matter to God. This, this is the part to be praised in Proverbs 31 for the woman who is to be praised. And of course, I mean, I could point you to Proverbs 7 and Song of Solomon and point out some other parts. But I feel like I just have to rebalance what the Bible's actually saying, and that is, is that you have been given this tool, a body. It is not for getting attention. It is not for advancing your agenda. And it is not for making you feel good about yourself. It is to serve people who need help. It is to be a blessing. Is your body wearing out from serving others? Good. Good. Look at those wrinkles and those gray hairs and whatever else, gravity's beautiful effects, and be like, good. Here's, here's why it's good. Because one day you get to hand that body over to Jesus, and he will love to see it worn out in his service, because then he'll just give you a brand new one. And it'll be even more amazing, because you wore out this one serving others instead of advancing your own agendas. So what about... Body, well, there's a little bit there. What about uh, number three, very fast. So I've asked 
Do you have a good upstairs window? What do you think your body's for? And third, let's talk about your speech. Obviously, the adulterous woman is using, in addition to her body, she's using her words to get what she wants. What do you use your words for? If you go through the Bible, you'll see that the women who bring life into the world always use their words to invite others into life. And the women who bring death into the world always use their words, well, to deceive. Now, let's pivot to a woman that we are in no danger of worshiping, and so we can really play it up. I suppose if I was talking to a bunch of ex-Catholics that are just, you know, fresh out of uh, the, the, the Eucharist, I'd, be, I'd, have to pet, I'd have to tread softly. But I'm in no danger of elevating Mary to the point where any of you are thinking serious about praying to her, I don't think. So I'm just going to tell you, like, there is this woman in the Bible, and she deserves to be praised and celebrated and studied. And her name is Mary. And we can take these very things that we've talked about. And by the way, she's sort of the prototypical woman who works for wisdom who brought life into the world. Life, life. Deep life. And we can just ask the same questions really quickly with Mary. So if you have your Bibles, look at Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. <laughs> a, pretty, a pretty crazy greeting. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and, you will, be, and, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I've always wondered if that was more clear to her than it is to me. Or if it's, I, I have to think it was, but I always wondered, does that make sense to her? It doesn't make a ton of sense to me in terms of specifics. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, I want to say just very quickly as a means of grace that if you're a woman, I just point this out, like this is, seems to be God's intended, God's help to you. I notice the way that God helps this woman connect a lesser miracle with what she's got to have faith in. So I noticed that essentially the angel says, look, God just made Elizabeth pregnant. Now that's a lesser miracle, but it's impressive because she's called barren. And I notice how God says essentially, look at that and see that I've done this, now trust me for that. 
And I think that that's really the way to navigate following God. Look at how he's taking care of you or others. Extrapolate that into the future for bigger things. So Mary is obviously, um, I, you know, one of, of wisdom's maidens, and she clearly works for wisdom. And I want to show you the window and the body and the speech really quickly. When we're talking about the upstairs window, we're talking about finding a way to have the proper perspective, especially when something is in our face that could cause us to panic or just go in the wrong direction. And sometimes the thing in our face is a pleasure, but sometimes it's a very scary thing, and that's what it is for Mary. And what exactly am I meaning by when I say the window? What's in verse 38? Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In the King James, it says, Behold, I am a maid servant of the Lord, which fits a little better with the Proverbs 9. Let it be to me. This is, this is her window. Let it be to me according to your word. Ladies, the word of God is the only upstairs window that works. It gives you the proper perspective on things. It helps you see that while the thing in front of you feels big or impossible or impossible to resist, the word of God puts you upstairs and lets you look down and see what's really going on there and the beginning and the end of the thing. And sometimes the thing you'll be forced with is tempting to embrace, and sometimes the thing you'll be faced with, like Mary is, tempting to reject because it's going to be hard. But if you will look through the upstairs window of God's word down onto the situation, you will see it rightly and you will be wise. Let's talk about the body. Nothing too complicated here. It just needs to be said time and time again that God is not only making a claim on Mary's heart, her mind, or her soul. This is why she really stands out to me as someone to look up to for myself. God is not only making a claim on Mary's heart, mind, and soul. God is making a claim on her body. This is key. And look again at verse what, what she says when she when she sees that, when God says, this is what I'm going to do to you, to your body, let's look at verse 38 again. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. Listen, friends, I don't think I'm being overly, uh, overly creative or innovative when I say this. The modern way of saying what Mary just said would be something like this. Okay, God, it's your body, so it's your choice. My body, my choice is a statement like our bike, mine, fry, which stood over the gates of Auschwitz and other places. It's a lie, and it's a lie that leads to death. That lie was uh, work brings freedom. My body, my choice brings death, but there's another statement that brings life, 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 and this has everything to do with what we talked about last week. God's body, God's choice. I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus. 
Romans 6.12 says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make, it, make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 1 Corinthians 6.19, You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Romans 12, 1 through 2, not only says everything I've just said, but it tells us that if you give your body to God, you'll actually have a better upstairs window. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good, acceptable, and perfect. So you, you submit your body to God, he gives you a better, clearer view out of the window. You give your body as a sacrifice, he gives you more spiritual wisdom and insight. What about your speech? Well, again, we look to Mary and we see, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. How should we use our speech if we want to be agents of life, not agents of death, if we want to be women on the side of wisdom and not on the side of folly? How should we use our speech? We should use our words to agree with God's words. We should use our words to agree with God's words. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And this is where we're going to wrap up. It is amazing that when you use your words to agree with his words, your words get so much better. It is a marvelous, amazing, beautiful thing to think of who Mary was and then read what she said in the following verses. Listen to this, beginning in verse 46. This young girl has just agreed, God, your body, your choice. Your, your tongue, your choice. Like, it's all according to you, may it be according to your word. And then she says this, and Mary said, verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Nothing wrong with wanting to be prominent. Got to be, got to be with the Lord. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. I'm going to pray in a minute, but let me introduce communion this way. I, I failed to mention one key data point that's really fast to explain, and that is, is that a lot of times the two women in the Bible are the same woman. This is weird. Hold on. The, the, the two women are the same woman. Eve 
agent of death. We don't even know her name until after the expulsion from the garden. And then her husband looks to her with grace and says, you are the mother of all the living. That's what Eve means. Sarah, terrible idea that brought a ton of destruction into the world. She's an agent of death. She's on the side of folly. She's redeemed and becomes the mother of all the faithful. Rahab was a prostitute, an agent of death, and then she became a hero of the faith. The woman at the well, an agent of death, now a hero of the faith. Probably Mary Magdalene, although we ain't sure. But the one, that's, the one that I want to leave you with is, uh, just goes by one name. Well, one name in a definite article. The church. The bride of Christ wasn't always a good girl. We, like sheep, had gone astray. Each of us had turned to our own way. The church, we are all people who were wayward agents of death, sons of, de of disobedience by varying our nature, children of wrath. And the, what I love about this idea that sometimes both women are the same woman is that God loves to redeem God loves to forgive. God loves to set right. God loves to heal and fix the broken, set the broken bones and so on and so forth. And that's what the church is. The church is the personification of both of these women we see throughout the Bible, but it is that God has made the wayward agent of death a new person. And now she's the bride. That's beautiful. And I'll leave you with this as our communion verse. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Let's pray. Lord, we love to think about your redeeming power and the great love that you have displayed while we were still your enemies, agents of death and destruction, using our bodies, our speech, and our own perspectives for selfish and sinful and hurtful reasons. And you stepped in with love and grace and forgiveness. All the wrath we deserved was poured out on your son, and you have offered us, Lord, a path to repentance and renewal and a chance to be on the right team. We praise your name that you offer us not only salvation but adoption, not only forgiveness but a calling, a charge to go out into the world and be agents of life. And so now, Lord, as we think about the, the hopefully some eagerness to give up these bodies to serve other people, let's come to this table and say, Lord Jesus, it's only because you gave up your body. As we partake of this cup and this bread, let us remember and be grateful for what you have offered, what you have done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Come.
ready? Let's stand and sing. Come that long expected Jesus. Jesus. 